humanitarian. The idea of developing a humanitarian version of the tech platforms we have seen disrupt one industry after another is appealing. But is it realistic and is it possible to create the humanitarian Airbnb and can we deliver principled outcomes through an app? Is it possible to cut out the humanitarian middleman? These were some of the questions looming in my head when I entered this conversation with the two entrepreneurial humanitarians, Natasha Fridus and Amanda Livingston, who are the co-founders of the startup Needs List. As you'll hear, they have really thoughtful and smart answers to these questions, and it was a great conversation. Clearly, solutions such as Needless cannot fully replace the mainstream humanitarian action as we know it today, but it's equally clear that it has an important and complementary role to play. It was therefore frustrating, but maybe not surprising, to hear Amanda and Natasha's experience in engaging with what they call an aging industry that lacks an appetite for innovation. But I think you should go check out Needs List and make up your own mind, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Natasha Fridus and Amanda Levinson, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you for having us. As I wrote to you when you, you, you approached me uh, on LinkedIn, you had me at hello. How can you say no to a story about two female tech entrepreneurs who develop a new app that helps humanitarian action become more, yeah, become more what actually? Yeah, so we are a company, woman-owned company, as you mentioned, who that is creating solutions to make humanitarian action faster and more sustainable and equitable. And we really believe in creating solutions that are collaborative, that are tech enabled, and that are grounded in the dignity of local populations. So what we currently have is a software that matches the needs and offers uh, in, for urgent local needs in real time. It's an enterprise level software. And so what it does is it allows organizations that are coordinating a response in a country or a region or a city, you know, just in an area to aggregate what the needs are from local organizations that are doing a response. These could be supply needs, they could be funding needs, um, they could be information needs, volunteer needs, etc. And then it matches those needs that are put into the software with offers that might be available from other organizations or local businesses. And it matches those needs and offers in real time to create more efficiency in the response. So you created a piece of software that helps an NGO become Airbnb for the humanitarian sector. Hmm. We hadn't thought of it that way, but it's go ahead, Tasha. I think there's um, often a misconception that platforms really are the Airbnb for the humanitarian sector. And I would, I would challenge that because our software is actually not directed towards individuals um, like Airbnb. That's where the analogy breaks down. It's a B2B matching software. So anybody, any user on the platform is associated with either an NGO, a CSO, a company, and it's really around designing that level of matching as opposed to individuals posting their needs. So on needsless, individuals do not post their needs and individuals cannot offer help. It's entirely B2B. You're the Alibaba for the humanitarian sector. <laughs> <laughs> but if that's still individuals buying 
items and goods online. All right. All right. You're unique. Your needs list, you're for the humanitarian sector. Where did the idea come from? Well, ironically, the idea came from being the Airbnb for the humanitarian sector, Lars. <laughs> no, you're, you're right in that um, when we got started, I was actually living in France at really the height of when Syrians were arriving in Europe in 2015, 2016. And I was on the ground um, supporting local refugees with a local organization. And I was just stunned by uh, kind of the mass chaos and all the needs that were emerging every day and changing every day. And I just found that we needed better tools to communicate in real time what was needed because at that point, everybody wanted the help and there was no good way of identifying what was needed where. So people would end up bringing things we don't need um, or things that were inappropriate or duplicating efforts. And so because I come from a tech background, I was just looking online. I figured there had to be some kind of registry, needs registry, like plugin that we could put on a WordPress site and I couldn't find anything. And so I ended up using a wedding registry as a way to communicate needs in real time to our volunteers. And that was really like the, the MVP or minimal viable product, first proof of concept for needs list. But what happened as, um, as we started building out the company and the product is we really saw that um, while, yes, there, is, there does need to be a better way to reach individual volunteers and donors, there the more fundamental problem, as we saw it, was that organizations had no way of communicating with one another. And so we actually pivoted our company and we rebuilt the software to be a B2B matching platform instead of a needs, a way of communicating needs directly to donors. So we actually have two pieces of software, but our energy and focus right now is on what we call Respond Local, which is the software Amanda described. So the way you describe it now sounds more to me like you are, you've developed a tech platform that essentially have the functionality that Ocha sort of has for the mainstream. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and uh, maybe a couple of use cases might, it helps illustrate it. So what happened at the very beginning um, is we were working on Lesbos with a number of local NGOs there. And one of them posted a need for a defibrillator. Um, and... Uh, Another NGO across the island saw that they need saw the first NGO needed a defibrillator. They had one sitting in their warehouse, an extra one that was going unused, and they brought it over, um, you know, seven kilometers, right? So instead of the traditional model of saying we need this, donor buys one, perhaps in the states or the UK, and sends it across uh, the ocean. Um, this was delivered within 24 hours at no cost. Um, and so it just got us really thinking, okay, what are all these other items that might be sitting in warehouses um, or available and just nobody knows what's needed? You know, So what, what our software really does is information matching more than anything. It just is the, very much a starting point for the process. You, you mentioned this example from, from Lesbos where... It, it's a, it really is a local affair, seven kilometers. Is that, is that primarily the use case to sort of ensure that the resources that is in basically in the affected area are utilized in a better way? Yeah, so re what we're really trying to do is create more efficiencies in how organizations uh, communicate their needs and also get those needs met within as much of a local area as possible. So we're trying to read, we're, we're basically trying to create a software that can reduce 
some of the waste that we see and inefficiencies that we see when um, organizations have needs and then a donor ships something overseas, which could be procured locally, which could be manufactured locally, which could be brought locally from another organization to that organization. And, you know, I think so often we think about humanitarian aid as being, uh, you know, a country or a city or a refugee camp needs something and then it gets shipped in from overseas when a lot of times the resources, they're available locally. It's just that there's that information asymmetry. This is what we hear over and over again is we'd love to help locally, but nobody knows what's needed where. And so that's what we're really trying to um, help solve for with our software is have a place where um, where organizations can can share those needs out so that everybody understands what's needed where and also who can help and who can help the most locally as possible and really trying to build the capacity of not only of local organizations, but of local organizations to help each other, of local businesses to be able to support those groups. And we actually had a fantastic um, example this morning come in with photos um, documenting the arrival of a thousand face shields to one of our uh, partners in Uganda. So we're working with Field Ready, um, which is a U.S. nonprofit that supports local manufacturing. And so they're using Needsless to identify needs of local organizations serving refugees in Uganda. Um, Lira NGO posted a need for face shields and Field Ready identified a local manufacturer that could produce them um, in Uganda, and then these were delivered. You know, so the entire uh, the entire like cycle of need production, need being met, all happened within the country, which is fantastic. And I, you know, I just want to add that we see this over and over again. Um, we've seen this in humanitarian context, but also in disaster relief context as well. So I moved to North Carolina right before Hurricane Florence hit. It was a major hurricane that hit the state. And there was really, you know, there were dozens of organizations that were trying to coordinate a response, a local response to help people. And, you know, we were on these conference calls where these organizations were sharing out over two hours. Here's, you know, here's what we need. Here's what we need. And I was saying, you know, we have a software that can that can help with this. And so, you know, as soon as that information got into a single place, it was it was like a game changer for organizations. And it wasn't individuals that were primarily using this. It was other organizations helping other organizations. Save the Children would come in and say, where are diapers needed? And there was a local organization in these in a small rural town that had needed for diapers. And they were able to, you know, get the items to where they needed to be. So it's just, um, it's, it's really amazing what can happen when, um, when you just have the information that's 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 out there. Where would you say your most successful operation has been? Where where have you really made a difference? I think um, I think I'd go back to the Uganda example if you'd agree with that, um, Amanda. That that work has been really exciting. Um, it's been funded through the Humanitarian Grand Challenge, which is an innovation award that runs out of um, Grand Challenges Canada and is supported by USAID, DFID, and the Dutch Ministry of Affairs, and what 
We've been partnering there with a number of organizations. And part of what's been exciting about that is that uh, the majority of them are refugee-led organizations. So you've got that local leadership of affected uh, populations from, from the get-go. They've been fantastic to communicate with. They, we've been testing different technologies with them over the past year and a half. Um, we started off working with uh, a chat, testing a chatbot with the idea that their field workers could text in their needs um, in real time to a centralized database. And they loved it, but what happened is when we went there to do some field work and testing, we realized that while it was certainly better than what they were using as a default, there was still a problem with, with lack of connectivity in the field. So oftentimes they would be writing it down in their notebooks, then getting back to the office and then texting it in. And we said, okay, so this isn't the right solution for this context, let's figure out something that works offline. So now we're testing a mobile app that ties into our Respond Local software that allows them to text in their needs offline. And when they get back to the office, it syncs with the database. And so uh, very, I'd say for the past you know, year and a half, we've had consistent use by numerous field workers of the technologies we're learning with them. Um, they're getting needs met locally and it's, um, you know, we've managed to bring in different partners and donors on that too. So, so how, how many uses would you say? How many uses do you have uh, in Uganda? Uh, can you define uses, Lars? Yeah, how many, uh, how many people enter needs into the system? It's still a small pilot. So there's about 30 that are entering needs in the system right now. Um, and I want to say something like twenty-five dollars to $50,000 needs that have been met. That's our main metric of uh, needs met, the dollar value. Um, and, you know, but representing for smaller organizations, that's quite a bit, right? So, yeah. And the other thing that I want to add, um, add to that uh, is that the other thing that's been really useful about this pilot in Uganda is that, so these aid workers, they've, had, they've actually added hundreds of needs to the platform. And because it's been kind of open in the sense of they can add supply needs, they can add tasks, they can add, you know, whatever we're seeing it's we're seeing that they're adding things like roads they want roads in their towns or they want chemistry teachers so it's just been or you know sewing machines for a women local women's empowerment project it's just as useful to understand um what the universe of needs actually is and also what are the needs that are going unmet and also what are the things that are not there that we would assume would be there as well? So there's so many different ways to look at this, the databases of needs that are being collected from the field um, that I don't think is really being, really being done. So basically what we're doing here is we're cutting out the middleman. Right? So let me put on my middleman cap, which is what, no, but it's not what we're doing, Natasha. It's actually not what we're doing. So we're not trying to create an open marketplace or platform. It is like, as Amanda said earlier, it's a licensed software where actually the middleman can step back if he or she wants to or be involved. So that means that the middleman, I actually want to use a better, we use the term intermediary, so I'm going to use that. So whoever the coordinating body or intermediary is can decide who has access to the software. It can be 
if they're a membership-based organization, it can be only their members. It could be anybody with a registered charity, nonprofit, or business number. Um, they can add additional vetting criteria to it. So they control who has access. And then what it does is it eliminates, it reduces the need for the intermediary to be manually matchmaking and sitting on the phone and sitting, going back and forth with email, connecting the two. It allows for that peer-to-peer connection. And, but the intermediary um, can still be very, very involved, actually. So it's really, ha it's very configurable. The software is configurable. You can say admins get um, notified every single time there's a match and become part of the process, or it can be entirely hands-off and it all happens through the software. So you could do, uh, you could say a very thin platform where basically whoever throws in a need uh, and somebody wants to respond to that, that's fine. You could uh, validate the need, I guess. Say, oh, we don't think teachers belong on this platform. Send them to the teacher platform, and we focus on on non non food items here. Yeah, and you can actually control. You could control the catalog of needs, so you can say only these types of needs. You upload your own catalog, and so if you wanted to be focused on, for example, the work we're doing with Field Ready in Uganda is entirely focused on PPE. And so users can't add other types of needs. Um, so if there are items, for example, that can't be imported into the country, you can exclude those from the catalog. Um, and so I go on this platform and say, oh yeah, a thousand face shields would be fantastic. But actually the real need is only 300. How, how, do, you, how do you check that? Well, so that's really up to the... Uh, to the licensing organization, the organization that's licensing the software, and that's... Um, coordinating that matching of needs and offers between entities to, to vet and verify. And they can set parameters, right? So they can say, like, you can only post up to X hundred of needs for face shields um, on this specific need. Uh, and anytime there's an offer uh, that has been matched with a need, there's a notification that goes to all parties. So it goes to the organization that is requesting the face shields. It goes to the organization that's offering the face shields. And it also goes to the organization that's licensing the software so that they understand what, so that they get a global view of, of what's happening, what the, what the transactions are. And then there's also a, a robust reporting system on the back end where, where they can see all the different, uh, all the different activity that's going through the platform. And, and I would just jump in to say, we get this question a lot, and I think part of that question is really tied to um, distrust people have of local organizations and issues of localization, because you can ask the same thing of the current system, the more traditional system where an INGO goes out and assesses what's needed. Um, and so I think what we're seeing when we, we hear this repeated, like, how do you know those needs are valid, is how do we know that we can trust these local organizations? And so I think it's fair to uh, flip that back and say, how do we know the status quo is working? How do we know we can trust INGOs to assess needs accurately? No, I, I, I think we know that it's not working adequately, right? I, I think that's what we know. That's basically what what I have been working on for the past 10 years is, is around how do we get better needs assessment. That's that's what ACAPS does. And it is an incredibly complex issue. And so I think 
yeah, you, you can make the, oh, we can't trust uh, the local organizations to, to be honest about the needs. But you could, also, you could also make the argument that sometimes things are so confusing that actually you don't really know and maybe you flag the wrong needs. So I, I, it's not just about lack of trust. It's also how do you actually validate uh, needs in, in high levels of uncertainty and ambiguity? I think that's, yeah, absolutely. You're right. Yeah, and that's totally valid. And we don't pretend that this is going to be a panacea. You know, uh, what we're arguing for is there has to be a better way, and we have the technology resources available to develop better ways together. And the challenge right now is all needs assessment tools end up being um, siloed, and any aggregation of them ends up being in a PDF form or in in nothing that shows real-time data. And that is really, frankly... um, it's catastrophic in, and inconscionable when we have the technology available to develop this. So we don't think tech is going to necessarily solve the problem like that. There's no single piece of software, but we do have the ability to, to make it better and to work with affected communities to figure out how to improve the status quo. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting about the story you tell is, is the bit around enhancing the agency of crisis-affected population, refugee-led organizations being able to actually shape the humanitarian narrative, if you want, and say, yeah, this is our needs. This is what we actually want. And and I think the localization uh, piece of it is really interesting as well, that it's, it lowers the threshold for, for tapping into local resources rather than having to bloody import everything from, from across the world. Right? I, I think those those are really fantastic things. I, I do think that there is... There is an issue around uh, how do you actually validate in a way um, so that it doesn't just become a, a remote middleman or intermediary with all the biases that are associated with that, that just clicks yes or no on the platform without ever having been to the field or just having seen the photo. I think I think there's some issues around around that. And I think the other thing that's um, that's on my mind is, I mean, I think some of the the most spectacular weirdness you experience in this sector is unsolicited goods, right? The things that people actually want to give away in a crisis ranges from, I think the maddest one I've heard was a donation of ice skates to a flooding in, in Bangladesh. How, how you ever could combine that, right? But, and, and a slurry truck to Albania. I mean, we, it's, it's quite so. Can you just propose whatever you want to be donated on this, and people can say, "Yeah, I'd like one of those." Well, yeah. So, so organizations can make offers of what it is that they would like to donate, and those offers could be, I guess, nearly anything. But you know, again, the vision here is really to try to prevent the unsolicited offers, the unneeded things to ever make their way into the field in the first place. And you know, Tasha and I, we saw this firsthand when we were in Greece, like these warehouses that were being run by grassroots organizations that had boxes filled with lingerie for women in refugee camps and, you know, and, and tennis rackets and just, you know, all and high heels and all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, there's so much, there's so much goodwill and, that individuals have, but also that companies have as well. Like when crisis hits, everybody wants to help. They don't know how, they don't know what's needed. But if you tell them, don't send this, send this, or here's exactly what's needed. This is the only thing that we're taking right now. 
then there will always be, of course, actors that just they they send they send the tractor trailer full of water to a location where you know it's been really explicit, like there's no water is needed. But we're trying to reduce that. And and so what happens instead of these unwanted donations flooding the um, the ports? And the, and the runways, what happens if they're in a database that is searchable and allows organizations, maybe not in that first two weeks when, you know, the first madness of crisis, right? But what happens if three months later, they're like, actually, we do need that now. Would you be able to send it? And so that's really the vision as well is uh, let people access what they need when they need it. So we spoke about Uganda. How, how many locations is it working in now? How, how many operations are you serving? The, the current software that we have um, is being used in Iraq, Bangladesh, Kenya, and Uganda. And then we also have um, Venezuela and Peru in South America. But the, the, the B2C platform that we started off with was used in over 25 countries with hundreds of organizations around the world. And in all different contexts, like refugee uh, camps, disaster, multiple disaster. And when you say B2C, you mean business to customers. So essentially the, the wedding list. Uh, That's right. Functionality you talk, yeah, uh, wedding registry, yeah. Yeah, the wedding registry one, yeah. Mm -hmm. So so now you move to, to this B2B model and you have these uh, six, seven countries where you, you, you're doing this. What would you say is your main learning in terms of, of um, what's the difference? Where, where do you hit a wall? What what surprises you in, in being very easy? What, what's the big success and what's the, what are the downsides? Uh, well, I can start, I guess. <laughs> I'm sure, Tasha, you'll have a lot to add here. But, you know, I think one of the... So from my perspective, there have been two really big main challenges that, that we face. And the first is that this is an aging sector and it's also a really recalcitrant recalcitrant sector where it's very really hard to innovate. And you know, initially we thought of the software as a tool for supporting local organizations and also as a very tangible way for larger organizations to reach their goals of funding local organizations that they had committed to and they could really understand what the needs were where and we were, you know, and, and we continue to sit in on these meetings and conferences and out Zoom calls where Heads of NGOs or staff of NGOs keep saying, you know, they're talking about the shortcomings of the sector and they keep pointing to the challenges of that, that one, one of the biggest challenges in not being able to redirect more resources to local organizations is not understanding what the needs are. We hear this over and over again and we're sitting there like we have a software, we have a tool that does this, but there's, um, you know, it's, and a lot of your guests have pointed to this in, 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 um, in previous shows that it's it's really hard to to shift these huge systems. There are these massive tankers that are just they're really slow to move. So there's that. And I think related to that, at some point we then realize that this isn't, you know, this is actually about the about um, the political will to make changes. It's not that there aren't the resources to make changes. It's that there's a lot that goes into protecting the status quo. And, um, and there's, there's not a huge appetite for innovation or even for trying things and seeing whether or not they work. So that's the first thing. 
can, can, we un, can we unpack that a little bit? I love the fact that you call us an aging sector, that we're basically geriatric organizations. I think that's hilarious. We're well into our 40s, just by full disclosure. It's not like... <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's try to unpack this a bit. So basically, you, you approach the mainstream humanitarian organizations, and you see a very limited appetite for the sort of solution you... Uh, you have. Uh, I hear you initially describing that as, okay, maybe they just don't have the appetite, but actually you then see that this is not an issue of lack of resources, it's simply lack of political will and it's protecting the status quo. So, two questions. Why, why, why do you think it's like that? And have you made any sort of a dent in that? Have you made any progress? Why do you think it's like that, Lars? <laughs> I think it's because of perverse incentives. Yes, I act. I, I think that's right. I mean, so it's really the way innovation is structured is there's no incentive for collaboration or coordination, right? So um, unless you're looking at the cluster systems or UN agencies, each INGO has their own innovation arm. The funding goes into their own arm, and they're incentivized to come up with their own solutions. And those solutions are not necessarily going to be about ways to move resources to other organizations. So that's, you know, there's a problem right there. Or to collaborate across organizations or to coordinate. So if we didn't make it, and if it's not good for us, we don't do it. So if you look at the systems which have been set up that are, in theory, set up to support coordination, like public sector or multilateral organizations, I think the challenge there is really about... Um, entrenched bureaucracy and inability to to innovate, frankly. And so innovation ends up being focused on products as opposed to systems level change and uh, and process level change. And so have you have you had any positive experiences with the mainstream organizations uh, and, and what were they? Well absolutely. Um, you know the we, we are being funded right now through this uh, Juntos Es Mejor Challenge, which is uh, set up to support the Venezuelan displacement crisis. And so that's, you know, that's fantastic. It's USAID and IDB funding and will allow us to deploy needs list uh, white labeled as Red Recuperación in Latin America. So that's fantastic. Um, that's the good side of it. The, the challenge there is like most innovation funding streams, they're set up for like a year, right? So you've got, it's actually less than one year to develop, deploy, prove out a model and secure additional funding to scale it up. You know, that, that's really not, it sets innovators up for failure from the beginning. Um, so there, there's definitely challenges around that. Um, I'm going to try to think of some more positive models. Um, we have, <laughs> we, no, I think we were one of the last trips I did right before uh, the lockdown last year was to the Humanitarian Partnerships Week in Geneva. And, you know, I do think it's a really a shame that there was, I, I, I was invited to speak. Um, I think there was a lot of interest um, around the model. And then, of course, everybody like turned in inwards um, when the lockdown happened. But I do think there is a growing recognition of the need for the tools that we're doing, especially because of COVID and because people are understanding the need for better coordination and for understanding the needs in a more transparent way of local populations. 
So I think we have a, a good description of your, your core services, of, of your, your software, what it does. You spoke a bit about uh, system change. So, so how, how, how are you a change agent? How, how are you able to not just deliver services in Uganda to, to that group of organizations, but actually change at a, at a larger scale? Do you want to take that, Amanda? It's, it's, it's not that we think that we're going to completely change the humanitarian system through our software, right? What we're trying to do is innovate a bit, especially in these core areas of collaboration, coordination, speed, efficiency, transparency, equity, like these are big things that we're trying to move the ball forward with a little bit with our, with our software. Um, and, you know, the one thing that, the one word that I don't want to use when we talk about the work that we're doing is disruption. Um, a lot of people have said, oh, you know, this is, this is a disruptive software. You're like, you're trying to dis you're, you're disrupting the humanitarian system. And, you know, I, I don't want to use the word disrupt to talk about what we're doing because disruption is, is part of the problem. And, um, disrupt means to destroy. It means to break apart. It means to displace existing structures. And I really think that language matters and that when we talk about disrupting, or crushing it, or we're killing it in relation to our work in a sector, which is which is literally trying to do the opposite. It's trying to stabilize countries. It's trying to repair communities. It's trying to save lives. That that's a problem, and so it's it and it's using the language of trauma to talk about the work in a, of a sector where where people's lives and well beings are at stake. So, I think that part of um, part of what we want to do is create a new vocabulary. It's around repair. It's around co creation. It's around innovation. Um, and these past few years, and especially this past year, have been disruptive enough. And so I think that if we can, if our software and our company can help create a vision of a humanitarian community that is about repair, that is about stabilizing, that's about coordinating and equity and all these things that we've been talking about, then I think that, that that'll be a huge contribution. I don't know if you want to add to that, Tasha. I think the only thing I, that I would add is part of why we've been able to secure some of the partnerships and um, and had the traction we have is because we in and of ourselves are a new model. So we're a tech startup that's intentionally formed as a mission-based technology company. Um, it's a public benefit corporation, which is similar to a B Corp. And there are very few examples of that, um, of that model working in the sector. So traditionally, you've got large NGOs and kind of charities, and then you've got maybe private sector companies that want to do some corporate social responsibility or helping out. Um, we really see ourselves as living in the middle and... Uh, for lack of a better way of saying this, is kind of uh, breaking down that binary way of seeing that there's people who are here to help and there are people here to are here to profit. Um, and so I think there's a, a there's room for a new model, and that's part of what we're really. Uh, I think one of our impact has been around changing the dialogue and letting people imagine a new model of a company that can do both. Yeah. I, I think it was, that was a very thoughtful answer to a somewhat simplistic question, actually. I, th I thought, I, I really liked what you said. I think, 
I think at times it, it can be frustrating to see the lack of change in the sector, and sometimes you you can look at, at, at some of the industries that have been disrupted and, and today are delivering significantly better services, and you can you can then think, uh, why shouldn't we do that? But I, I actually really take the point uh, that it is fundamentally a very destructive process and that, that that's not who we are. So we are talking about some kind of a plus-sum game here. You're not here to replace OCHA, you're not here to replace the mainstream humanitarian system. But then what, what is the collaboration? What's the system link ideally for you? What, what, where do we meet? Uh, ideally, OCHA would license our software and make it available to local countries so that they could use it in times of crisis and beyond. You know, and whether it's just OCHA or other UN agencies, I, I absolutely do not see this as an either or. We do not want a tech company running the humanitarian system. We're really clear on that. Like multilaterals have been set up very intentionally. Um, and while there are problems with them, we technology alone is not going to solve these problems, right? We need people on board and we need people who are managing the software too. And so let me put on a OCHA hat for a little while and an IM hat and then say, you know what, guys, we have a whole division that is focused on information management, on coordination, and we are able to do this at scale. Okay, so maybe it can look a bit clunky with all the clusters in a big operation in the first weeks, but actually we have a lot of people working on this and we do have some pretty advanced tools within the different clusters. It's just... It's with trusted suppliers because that's what you need when you move quickly. And we think it's nice that you guys play around with, with the, some of the small organizations and and do some of that stuff. That it seems it seems nice, but uh, I, I don't think it's for us. What would you say to that? We've looked at some of the software, for example, what's being used right now in Latin America to support um, to where organizations can register and see what's happening around the Venezuelan crisis. And I got to say, it's got nothing on our user experience and our design. We've been designing with our users from the beginning. Um, it doesn't show anything in real time. Um, so I would say it's sometimes you need to have an outsider come in and try new things and, and look at it in a different way. Um, and it's not to say that the systems and software that OCHA is building aren't needed. Of course they are, but that doesn't mean that you can't bring in other solutions as well. And, you know, imagine what we could do if we had the resources behind us. You have to think about like other industries that have been and quote unquote disrupted they had billions of dollars in investment to make that happen. It didn't just happen. It didn't just happen on a couple million dollars of, of investment. So let's go back to those six, seven contexts you work in. Iraq, Bangladesh, uh, Uganda, Kenya, Venezuela, Peru. Was that right? So give me the top three problems that you're struggling with. The, the, the hardest nuts to crack. Not the tech stuff. We don't really understand that here on this show. But... But sort of the, the user, what are the, what are the effects that are not happening? What are the things that keeps you up at night? Well, I would say that one of the, one of the challenges is just simply from a, um, an information standpoint, getting the word out enough so that enough organizations and enough businesses are consistently using the software. I mean, that's something that just takes some time. And that's another thing that you can't just build the software and then everybody's going to rush to it. We know from having done this for years now that you need 
you need boots on the ground. You need people that are trusted in the community to um, to really show people what the value is of using a new tool, that they're not just going to use it and then nothing's going to happen, that there's actually, that, that there's a value here and it's worth their time, it's worth their resources. Um, but that, that's, that's been a challenge in every context. So that's one. So marketing and building a trusted brand. Absolutely, yeah. And then balancing supply and demand, right? Because it is a marketplace software. So if you only have needs and no offers um, or vice versa, it's not going to work effectively. And what, which one has been the problem? Well, for I can say that uh, when we, we, we did a, a, a pilot of our, of, of our software, we had basically just built it. We're just, you know, kind of wrapping it up when COVID hit. And so we decided that we wanted to pilot it um, for, for COVID. And so initially, there were actually tons of offers on, on, um, on the pilot that that we had launched lots of offers for PPE and organizations that just weren't claiming those offers. So that was lopsided in that way. And then we've also seen that, um, you know, like in refugee contexts, for example, that there will be lots of needs that are in the database, but you don't have the, the offers or, or, organizations or companies that are claiming the offer or claim, claiming the needs, sorry. Um, so it's, it's, it is really hard to, to get that balance. Um, and we're going to see if we're going to see if it can work in any context where at least there's more of a, more of a balance, but, it'll, but that's part of what we're testing. Great. So the, the marketing bit, the supply demand bit, and then what, what's the third one? I'd say the third one is really around the logistics piece of it. Um, so it's great if there's matches, you know, that's the first step, but it's obviously not the last step. So everything that happens between that match of understanding, connecting these two parties, the need and the offer to last mile delivery, that is not um, integrated into the platform that's happening off the platform. It's, we work with uh, different logistics partners around that. But of course, that's, that's obviously an issue, especially when you're talking about smaller shipments to local organizations that are, um, you know, might not have the um, experience with procurement or uh, last mile delivery as well. Um, so that's always going to be an issue. And it's actually one we very intentionally not are not trying to solve ourselves. That's not our expertise, because we know we know that while um, aid can't be delivered without that piece, our argument is you can't have any kind of more efficient system without that information piece. So we see this as the first step. The thing I have been really trying to think about with, with these type of solutions and that I've never really found a good answer to is, is, the, is the issue of how do you ensure that you get a principled outcome, right? In, in this supply-demand system, I mean, don't you run the risk of the most vulnerable not being hurt or not being able to enter their needs into the platform? Um, who... Who actually looks at that? Who actually looks at whether are we getting it right, or, or do we? Is there some kind of market failure here, which means that actually we are leaving a few people behind? So that's a that's a really great question. It's an important question. It's a question that we've grappled with since we started Needs List, because our mission and vision is has always been to surface the voices of the 
of, of the organizations that are working with some of the most vulnerable people. And I think by design, our software that we've built is intended to, um, to get the voices of the organizations that are working with those most vulnerable people from the get-go. So in all of these contexts that were um, where, where the software is, is, um, is being used, it's being used by organizations that are refugee-led organizations or that are led by uh, members of the community that are, um, that are working with, with vulnerable populations in, in country. A lot of that is going to depend on who's licensing the software to begin with, right? So if, it's, uh, if the software is being licensed by an organization that's coordinating um, that's coordinating a response uh, with with mid-sized organizations or larger organizations or smaller organizations. Um, but but the other thing I would say is that at least you know built into these projects that that um, where where the software is being used, we have um, an evaluate a company that's doing an evaluation of the outcomes that looks at population served in terms of gender, in terms of background, income, like all those different, um, all those, all those different uh, demographics to really understand um, who, not only who was getting their needs met, but who was posting the needs, understanding what the challenges were, why the needs didn't get met, things like that. And so, um, we may not be able to solve that, but our backend reporting and data will show if we aren't solving it, which is the first step to solving it, right? Yeah. You you spoke about your licensing. What what what's the business model actually? So you got some money to develop the solution from from different donors. You you got some money to develop the solution from different donors. Do you do you users pay for the software? How expensive is it? whoever is licensing the software is paying for it. And, you know, there are different tiers depending on the number of users and, you know, the length of the, the license, but it's free for the users entirely. And I think that's really important. I think um, because Amanda and I both have a lot of experience in technology and the impact sector, we know that um, organizations aren't going to use it if they need to pay for it. Like change adaptation of new software is really slow. And frankly, um, having those costs covered by, whoever is licensing it or foundations is going to be absolutely critical. But it is, um, I referred to this earlier, it is a white labeled software, which means that the branding and look and feel of the software will be who, from completely customized. So it doesn't look like needsless software, like the Red Recuperacion in Latin America looks, it's got its own look and feel and color scheme. And, you know, the partners who are licensing it are, are, you know, front and center, same thing with the field ready one we're doing as well. So it sounds to me like you're beginning to find, you have proof of concept, right? You, you, you've been able to demonstrate this working in, in a number of places, not at a massive scale, but of course, you know, when we talk about innovation and, and, uh, and startups, you know, disruption is one thing we talk about and scaling, of course, is what we also talk about. So where are you in five years? Yeah, I mean, I think our, our vision is, you know, when I think about the outcome, it's that we have, fundamentally, we have a humanitarian sector that's really 
serving the needs of the people and that's meeting the needs of the people. And that means that, um, that these local organizations that have effectively been, you know, cut out from, from funding and from, from resources that they're, that they're really thriving and that they're able to serve the needs of their communities more effectively. So that's what, what I think about like the outcome that in order for that to happen, what needs to happen in order for that to happen? Well, obviously the software needs to be um, adopted at a much larger scale. And, you know, I think that in, it's in, in some ways it's like, it's a mind, it's a mindset shift too, that we're talking about. It's, it's, you know, because when you, when you get the adoption of, of something like a software, it means that, you know, that, that the organizations that are using it have bought into the idea that, that, okay, this is something that's really valuable. It's something that we actually really need to do in order to change the outcomes of, um, of the communities. We can't do business as usual. You know, we're like the, every disaster, every humanitarian emergency, it's like groundhog day. Like we see the same problems over and over and over again. If we can, um, if, if, if we can can fix that in some way, then you know I think the vision in in ten years is to have a sector that's that's responding responding more effectively and transparently and sustainably and equitably to um, to people in need. So I know you say you're not disruptors. However, I am going to pull you back into that space and just ask a couple of questions. So let's say you actually scale and that, uh, let's say, 30% of all humanitarian assistance is delivered through needs lists, right? How many licensing, licensing, how many organizations will license your software in that situation? Or in other words, are, we gonna, are you going to move towards a few sort of, a few really big ones that, that do this? Or is it going to be, how does that play out? It's a really good strategy question, Lars. Um, I think it's really hard to to scale this without buy-in from some of the large organizations. And so that's really been our focus is securing um, a couple large-scale deployments of the software that can be used in multiple locations as opposed to trying to sell a license to every single city or every, you know, it's just not, it's it's too slow and sales cycles for public sector especially are very slow. Um, so in, in terms of how we get to that vision, I think there's a number of ways it can play out. And frankly, if it ends up being that there is a larger organization or a company that says we can, we believe in this and we can do it, you know, much faster than you can, we're open to that. We're open to different kinds of collaborations or models that'll reach the goal. It does not have to be that Needslist is some $10 billion company in 10 years that has licenses all over. For us, what's important is that this technology and this approach can help change the way that aid is delivered. The reason I ask is that when you talk about cash-based assistance, for example, it's clear that there are economies of scale there and that it lends itself very well towards a couple of organizations handling that, and that that would essentially mean that a number of NGOs would see greatly reduced turnover or maybe even you know, uh, disappear. Now, you can make two arguments. You can say, uh, that's not a problem. That's great. Actually, it's more efficient. More aid will get out to, to the users. Or you could say, it's a real problem if we kill the diversity of the humanitarian ecosystem and pump everything through one channel that really creates some vulnerabilities. And I think my question is, do, do you, I know it's early days, 
But do you see a similar effect if you are successful in scaling needs list that a few big actors is actually the the organizational architecture we need? We we don't need several hundred. Are you talking about the just to clarify, you're talking about the need for competition? Well, I think it's more like if you go to uh, your groundhog day, right? You you have, you know, you have several hundred Bill Murrays. <laughs> right? There, there, there are a lot of, of organizations running around doing more or less the same thing. Now, is what you're doing creating a, a solution that actually will eliminate a good chunk of those because it's more efficient and because it lends itself well to economies of scale so that if you scale, it will also change the nature of the NGOs. That, that, that's a question I think I sense is on many people's minds. It's, it's, it's not our intention to, um, to put NGOs out of business, if, that's, if that's, that's a question. It's actually not something that ever really occurred to me. I mean, it would be great if we had no need for NGOs working in the sector because we didn't have you know, the types of humanitarian crises, but we know that's not going to happen, right? We know that crises are just growing. If anything, there's, there's, there's going to be a need for, uh, for more solutions, not, you know, not, not fewer solutions. Um, and I think that again, you know, the, one of the things that we really want to do with the software is encourage coordination and collaboration. Um, and there's so many question marks that, that go along with that. Uh, so I don't know that I can actually answer that, answer that question. I don't know if you have anything to add, Tasha. No, no, I think, uh, that's that's a much bigger question that is I think it's going to be it's too early to to respond to that um, I think if if that's what it takes to be more efficient sure if if we can identify needs and meet get those needs met more efficiently and we don't need as many organizations sure if there's a way to raise the profile of local organizations that would be the goal and if that means reducing the number of the mid-sized um, NGOs or larger NGOs I I'm all for that, frankly. Great. Great answer. Amanda and Natasha, thank you so much for coming on True Humanitarian. It's been a great conversation. It's so exciting what you're doing. It's, it's fantastic to see the, the potential in terms of localization. It's fantastic to see the way in which you can, you can suddenly give agency to organizations that we often exclude from the mainstream uh, humanitarian system or that tend to get squashed in, in, in the, the big game, if you want. And so I wish you all the best of luck with your, your, your company in, in the years to come. And I look forward to seeing the needs lists pop up in all the operations uh, I'll visit in the future. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Lars. It's about the rights and the freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>